0: The Rural Health Voice, Episode 31, Addressing Stigma. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What does a football reporter know about drug overdoses? Lauren Sisler from ESPN and from Giles County, joined me to talk about her journey from denial to acceptance to advocacy. Well, hello, Lauren. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and a pleasure and uh, just looking forward to joining you guys here in a very short time.
0: It should be fun. A little bit of background on you first. You went to high school in Virginia and graduated from Giles County. After that, you went to Rutgers as a gymnast. Now you're a sideline reporter for ESPN. What's that like?
1: Yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. It's been a, it's been a blessing. It's been it's been a whirlwind. Let me tell you, my journey into broadcasting has certainly been uh, not conventional, if you will. Uh, when you kind of look at the journey that I've taken and look back on where I started and sort of my dreams, hopes, and aspirations growing up, you know, as you said, I was a gymnast, so I was you know, I grew up in a sports family and I was always around sports, but I had this dream and this goal of being a sports doctor or an athletic trainer. And so that was always sort of my, um, you know, my aspirations growing up. And so when I got to Rutgers, um, you know, things sort of changed and and my goals and my visions sort of changed. And so you know, when I graduated from Rutgers, um, it was in communications. And so my career in sports kind of took off from there, bouncing around from TV station to TV station. Um, you know, a lot of people think, well, you know, if you can talk eloquently and, and, and share a story, then hand somebody a mic and get up there and go. And I'll tell you right now, that's not the way this thing works. Uh, you know, it certainly, it takes a lot of time, a lot of reps, a lot of mistakes, to get to where I am today, but certainly thankful for the opportunity and just love to be able to travel around the country covering uh, various sports, primarily college football. I've gotten to cover some NCAA gymnastics as well and, you know, just getting to meet a lot of different people and coaches and athletes and fans that really make it more than just a game.
0: And you grew up in Virginia Tech country and you graduated from a Big Ten school but for several years, you've covered SEC football. Anyone give you a hard time about that? Oh, yes.
1: You know, I, I. it's funny how that all worked out. Because when I was actually at Rutgers, we were in the Big East. So that was our conference at the time. Um, and then, of course, we transitioned to the Big Ten after I had graduated. But it's crazy because I started out in the Big East. As you said, I grew up around Virginia Tech. And so, uh, you know, being an ACC country When I graduated from college, I ended up making my way back to my local TV station, WDBJ7 in Roanoke. And so I was working in the ACC covering uh, Virginia Tech as well as UVA. And so then, of course, I get here to Birmingham, Alabama. And everyone down south and especially, you know, you have your allegiance to your particular conference. And people were like, you know, the SEC is a different deal. We're telling you it's a totally different deal down here. And I was like, nah, come on. There's no way. It, it, it can't be that much different, right? Well, let me tell you, uh, it didn't take long for me to realize what they were talking about. As a Virginia girl, I consider myself from the South. But when you go into the Deep South here in Alabama, it is a different ball game. People take it so seriously down here and... I mean, I love it. It makes my job that much more fun. But people always ask me, of course, being in Birmingham, Alabama, are you an Alabama fan or are you an Auburn fan? And I always say I'm a fan of the team I'm covering on any given day. Because (laughs) let me tell you, being in the locker room when a team loses a championship game and being in that locker room next to men crying uh, with that emotion is so difficult. And so uh, I got to tell you, I just – I'm always cheering for the team, the home team, whichever team I'm covering on that given day because it makes my job a lot more fun.
0: In addition to that, you have agreed to be our keynote speaker for the upcoming Appalachian Communities Opioid Response Summit. Why is a football analyst talking about opioids?
1: Well, that is a great question. And if you would have asked me this question many, many, many years ago, uh, I never would have seen myself in this position with this opportunity to uh, speak about opioids. And, you know, it's something near and dear to my heart. Uh, my story, you know, dates back to really um, college when I was a freshman at Rutgers competing on the gymnastics team. And, you know, for me, um, you know, I never really had an understanding of uh, of, of addiction at the time. I didn't understand Um, that the opiate crisis existed and as it's obviously become more of an epidemic as as the the years have gone on. Um, When I was a freshman, I uh, received a phone call from my father um, letting me know that my mom had passed away. And of course, she was 45 at the time, seemingly healthy. She had some chronic pain she was dealing with going to a pain management doctor. He was also going to that same pain management doctor. And at the time, really, I just thought, um, you know, every, by all accounts, everything was fine. But when my father gave me that news that my mom had passed, I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. And he really couldn't give me an explanation as to what happened. He just said, get on the next plane. You can, and I'll be at the airport to pick you up. And so I get to the airport and, you know, at that, at that time, all I wanted to do was run and jump in my dad's arms and for him to tell me everything was going to be okay. And unfortunately he never made it to the airport Um, and he too, uh, passed away on that same day, just within a few hours of my mom. And what we later found out was that both of my parents had died from prescription drug overdose of the prescription drug fentanyl, the fentanyl pain patch, um, that they were prescribed. My mom was prescribed this patch to help her with her pain, along with other narcotics, um, including Oxycontin. And so both of my parents were taking prescription drugs to try to help them cope with their pain. But unfortunately, over the course of time, um, they started abusing that medication because it was their only way that they could get out of bed in the morning. You know, my, my, my parents were two people that... Always got out of bed in the morning with a smile on their faces. They were always involved in the community. Um, They were always involved in my athletic events and gymnastics. My brother was a three sport athlete. You would always find my dad on the sidelines coaching my brother. And, you know, we were a very close knit family. And so, it came as a shock to everyone when this news came that they both died of prescription drug overdoses because we really just had no idea what was going on behind closed doors. At the time, I was at Rutgers. Um, As I said, I was a freshman. So I was out of the house and my older brother, Alan, was uh, stationed in Virginia Beach in the military. And so he was in the Navy and So we were both out of the house and we weren't seeing and witnessing some of the signs and and, uh, kind of red flags that were pointing to the fact that they were struggling with this addiction and ultimately led to their deaths, um, you know, on, on March 24th, 2003.
0: Tell me a little bit about what you observed then versus what you know now you you said at the time you didn't you didn't suspect anything but I'm guessing there's a little bit going on in your head of oh if i had known maybe i would have seen this
1: absolutely and that is such a great question and you know, a question that I kind of mulled over for many, many, many years because I didn't understand what addiction was at the time growing up. You know, my father struggled with some PTSD. He was also in the military. Um, he served in the Navy. I was born in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And... Um, you know, by all accounts, everything was, you know, uh, pretty normal in our household. Now, my father did struggle with some alcoholism and, um, you know, for the most part had it under control, you know, would go to his meetings and, and obviously, uh, you know, take the necessary steps to try to, to help him get through some of those, you know, um, mental health issues that he was suffering from. And then of course the, the chronic pain. And so I didn't really understand it because visibly it didn't make sense to me. Oh, you know, um, everything just seemed normal. And this was just kind of par for the course. Right. And so, you know, as the years went on um, and as my parents were going to these, this pain management doctor in Roanoke, you know, I would hear about it, you know, oh, we've got to go to to the doctor today and, um, you know, get a checkup. And, you know, my mom would have her surgery. So she had multiple surgeries over the course of three years. So from that standpoint, you're seeing the physical signs of things like the pain that they were dealing with and the the constant you know, um, just medicating that they were doing. And you see the pill bottles in the cabinet, but it doesn't resonate with a 16, 17-year-old in the house, right? It didn't resonate with me. Oh, mom and dad are taking this because they need it. They're prescribed these prescription drugs. This is prescribed to them. So this is doctor's orders. And now that I've been educated on it and looking back, number one, Fentanyl is something I didn't know anything about at the time. Um, it's a pain patch, time-release patch. I knew mom was, uh, you know, I, I would I would see them on her arm or her chest or whatever, and you know, just said, well, that's her prescription. What I didn't understand is that fentanyl can be highly abused, and there's different ways to abuse it, and certainly, um, you know, that that kind of leads down that dark path of addiction. And fentanyl being one of the most, if not the most potent drug on the market today um, as as it was administered even as a time release patch because you're able to alter the way that you consume it. And that obviously can lead to the overdose. And ultimately, that's what happened to my parents. And so looking back on that, there were signs, you know, that, that I now understand, you know, at the drop of a hat, my father might fall asleep. Um, while we're watching a movie, you know, ten minutes into the movie, and then he wakes up at the end of the movie and restarts the movie, and ten minutes later he's asleep again. And of course, in my mind, it's like, oh, well, Dad had a long week at work; he must he must just be tired, you know, he needs rest. And so that was always my thought process when I would see that. And you know, there was a couple incidents with my parents that, um, you know, my parents were very loving people and they were very happy. And so when you would see that demeanor change, um, you know, some anger and some issues where, you know, my mom ran out of her medication and she got really angry and really upset and just, you know, telling me things like, you may not be going back to Rutgers next year. And, um, you know, she would just be sharing things with me that I just wasn't accustomed to hearing her say. And then a day or two later, she'd call me back up at school and just be like, oh, everything's okay. I'm really sorry you know, and that anger had dissipated. And so then my father clued me in and said, yeah, your mom ran out of her medication. Um, you know, everything's fine now. And so it was, it was the change in behavior. I think that was a big part of it. And then of course the finances. Uh, my brother and I really just, you know, growing up, sure, you know, we were spoiled by all means, but also, at the same time, there was there was a realistic approach to, you know, when I wanted that brand new car when I was 16 years old, you know, my parents said, nope, you're going to have this hand-me-down. You're going to start with this. And so, you know, that seemed normal to me, but there were issues going on in terms of um, the bills were starting to pile up. And And we as kids weren't really clued into it, but there were times where, you know, I would hear conversations with my parents about, um, not being able to pay the mortgage and, and, and being concerned about overdraft fees and, Hey, sorry, we can't pay for this. And, um, you know, I was, I was competing at a very high level in gymnastics and there was, there's a pretty substantial tuition, uh, cost associated with that. And, um, my mom had started working at the gym I was working at at the time and, I just assumed she wanted to get out of the house, you know, she was in pain and she just wanted to get out of the house and not be stuck at home and depressed and so she started working at the gym and I was like, "Oh, this is great." You know, she, you know having her back in the gym you know, always there kind of watching and whatnot. Well, later I find out that she was back at the gym because she couldn't afford and my parents couldn't afford for my tuition. And so they were sort of paying back the money they had borrowed against the gym in order to keep me in the gym and keep me um, at that level of gymnastics that I was at uh, before I left for college. And so I think that it kind of became a whirlwind and definitely a, a cyclical effect of, you know, sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul, just trying to stay above water. You know, we're going to pay this off. And, you know, I later found out that they couldn't pay for my prom dress and they had to ask my aunt and uncle to help them with that and, you know, my computer in college. And so it it definitely just became a domino effect um, that really was very much concealed from me and my brother and really my entire family.
0: Losing your parents would be traumatic under any circumstance, much less both on the same day, much less losing them when they're relatively young. How did you first find out about the cause of death?
1: Well, um, you know, as I said, you know, when my father called me on the phone, you know, he couldn't give me an explanation. And then, of course, I I touch down, I get to the airport, and he doesn't end up picking me up. And my uncle and cousin instead had to deliver the news and um really there was no explanation at the time and i think the hardest part for me was the denial that i went through because you know something's obviously not right when you have two people that pass away within just several hours of each other there on the same day and you know just the circumstances nothing adds up and so you know you're trying to figure out what the heck happened how does this happen i just don't understand and it took every bit of 90 days. The um, coroner's office had 90 days to issue uh, an autopsy report and um, the findings in that autopsy report. And my aunt recounts this, this very much so. My aunt Linda, who um, has been a big part, her and my uncle Mike, have been a big part of sort of helping me to redefine my pathway in this world um, after the passing of my parents. And, you know, my aunt remembers vividly uh, me sitting in the car when she had to go into the coroner's office to get those toxicology reports and to get the autopsy. And she comes back out. I wouldn't even go in there because I just, I couldn't, I couldn't. And she comes outside and she has the envelope in her hands and she kind of looked at me and, and I just looked at her and I said, I don't want to see it. Like I didn't want anything to do with it. And it took me 10 years before I actually looked at those documents that, basically outline and state what exactly happened um, in the investigation that went into determining the chain of events that led to my parents passing. And so being able to conceptualize that happening, um, not only one parent, but two parents and by the same cause of death within hours apart um, in, in a, in a manner that just doesn't make sense and, and, when you look at two people, I think that's one thing I've learned through the education process is that you know addicts you 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 want to place them into a category there's a there's a there's a perception of what an addict looks like, right what an addict does for a living, what an addict um, how they carry themselves, how they're you know presented in the community. but that perception is so false and so. Different than what I think our world and our society has placed on it, and my parents are two perfect examples of that. They're two people that look um, look the part of loving parents, loved us unconditionally. They looked the part, they played the part. Everything about my parents nothing was indicative that they were drug addicts. And I think that's almost the scary part because to some degree it's like, I wish I would have known. I wish I would have seen the signs. I wish I would have had a better understanding because then maybe they would still be here today. Maybe somebody could have gotten them the help that they needed. And it's it's kind of wild. I've actually been going through some old documents, um, you know, uh purging some stuff and, and going through some of my parents' old belongings and I come across some of their uh, papers and, and, and documents from their medical records and things like that. And my mom was somebody that documented everything. She wrote everything down and she was obviously looking, um, she, she was, uh, in the process of, of, uh, Trying to file for disability, and she had to go through an appeals process multiple times before they finally um, settled and were able to issue that disability for her. Um, but she would document her pain every day and the amount of medication she's taking and all these things. And I'm reading through this and I'm almost taking myself into her mind and saying, this is not someone that's sitting here documenting this, thinking. I've got a real problem. I've got an addiction and, um, I need to go somewhere and get help for this. This is somebody that is literally by the book, taking everything as prescribed and being, you know, being told what she needs to do to be able to cope with that pain. Okay. Well, this isn't working. Let's up those dosages. Okay. This isn't working. So I think the hardest part is understanding where that, that switch flipped to where both of my parents were seeking pain management to, ultimately becoming addicted to their pain medication and unable to um, survive without it. And really, uh, you know, the, the, the point of where they were unable to return and, and, and change the course of their lives.
0: Why do you think Americans attach a different way of thinking about people who are struggling with drugs than we do people who are struggling from a physical illness such as cancer?
1: That is a great question and one that I've addressed um multiple times and really have given some deep thought to. I think one of the biggest things when you go out and advocate for something, um, you know, we're actually uh hosting an in-heroin walk here in Birmingham um coming up and uh, it's, it's been an annual event and it, it's amazing because you get on Facebook and you, you promote the event and you have a couple hundred people that say they're going to come. Well, you get, you get to the park and you there's four or 5,000 people that show up. And so there's this realization that many more people are impacted by this, this addiction, by this disease and this, this problem than, than anyone's willing to admit. And so I think that society has placed such a stigma on it because, The bottom line is, um, you know, addiction as it is as a disease, if you make a comparison to cancer or diabetes or, you know, various, uh, illnesses or diseases that, you know, certainly can be fatal. I think the, the, the common theme there is that I didn't choose this. I didn't choose to have cancer, um, but that's not always the case because there are instances where your cancer might be caused by smoking a cigarette or ingesting certain things or diabetes. You know, your your health and your overall nutrition can be a big contributing factor to that um, disease. So there are choices, but I think what in, in the grand scheme of things, there's this thought process that, you know, addiction is a choice and you can choose whether or not to take that drug and you can choose whether or not you're going to go down that path. But there, you know, there's such a gray area there because choices, uh, you know, you don't choose to have chronic pain. You don't wake up every day. Um, you know, saying, well, I'm going to choose to be a drug addict, right? Nobody chooses to be a drug addict. And yes, while some people do take drugs recreationally, um, you know, I don't know a single person that has become addicted to drugs, uh, that says, man, you know, that was a great, great choice, you know, but I think the, the, the biggest issue I see is you tell someone to wear pink for breast cancer awareness, and whether they are associated with breast cancer or have ever experienced it personally or a family member, people are quick to jump in and, and provide their services and really want to help the cause. But it's a different story sometimes when you say, hey, why don't we wear red um, for addiction? And people just don't want to be associated with it because it's a different kind of disease. It's stigmatized in our society. And ultimately, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that addiction um, has a lot of negative consequences and side effects. And those side effects with an individual are often things like stealing, lying, cheating, manipulating, and hurting their loved ones in order to get that fix. And I think that is the biggest issue we run into is that the, the fallout that is caused by addiction itself and by drug abuse and opiate drug abuse is um, that of someone that is uncharacteristic. So, you know, you, you, you see somebody and you know somebody by who they are and the loving person that they are. And then you see a different side of them when they're trying to go and ultimately get that fix because their body is demanding that they get that fix. Um, because of the pain that they're suffering through, whether it be from the chronic pain or from being dope sick. And so it's a very different sort of uh, dichotomy between the two things and and really trying to understand that is so hard for people. And people just don't want to be associated with it. People don't want to be that person um, to stand up to it and say, you know what, my mom has this or my brother or my sister, my aunt, uncle, whoever it is, because there's there's a factor of shame there. And I can tell you, talking about it has alleviated a lot of that shame. And I'll tell you, that's a big part of my story. And that's a big part of what I will share, you know, when I'm, when I have the opportunity to come speak um, to you all uh, later in April.
0: So why make the decision to share that story?
1: Well, I think it's important because again, as our society has stigmatized this and made this issue a not mine issue, not my problem, not my kid, not my school, not my community. But the fact of the matter it is, it is your school, it is your child, your child, your school, your community is being affected by this. Whether it's the individual, or it's the friends, it's the classmates, it's the parents. Um, the teachers, the organizations, whatever it may be, everyone is impacted by this. And so I think it's so important that we talk about it because we brushed it under the rug for so many years, I being one of those. You know, when my parents first passed away and as I started, it took me seven years to be able to share the truth about how my parents died, seven years before my best friend even knew how my parents died. I would tell this sugar-coated story because I wanted to believe in my own heart. And I wanted others to believe that my parents, no, my parents were not addicts. I couldn't use the word overdose or addiction in the same sentence with both of my parents. And so to me, I was trying to preserve that legacy for them. And so what's, you know, what's, what's, you know, I guess come from all of that is this realization that speaking out about it can do so much more good than being quiet and being silenced by it. And I think that you know, for many years, even when I came out and started speaking openly about it and just sharing it with my friends and, and people close to me, when I would post about addiction or post about an event, you know, I would always make sure that I referenced my parents and that, you know, my parents had this issue because I was afraid people might reflect that on me and say, well, you know, does she have an issue? Is she dealing with addiction? And that was always my thought process, but that was all part of the healing process and really the education and understanding because now it's like, Honestly, I don't care if people think it's me or if it's my parents or whomever else, because at the end of the day, it sparks a conversation and people want to talk about it. And that's what is so amazing about it. I'll go to schools or community events and it's amazing the response that you get from people. They'll come up to me afterwards and say, Well, I know this person um, that's having this struggle. You know, what's some advice? Or they might send a message to me on social media and you know, people are starting to want to talk about it more, and that's why I think that we 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 create this conversation. We got to start somewhere, and so that conversation we got to spark the conversation, and we got to get this thing on. You know, get this thing to catch fire and to continue, because ultimately. Um, you know that's the only way that we're going to be able to attack this thing and to be able to slow down this epidemic and hopefully you know one day um, you know bring it to a halt because unfortunately we're we're losing so many lives to um, the opiate crisis to prescription drug overdoses to suicide mental health illness and they all are tied together in some way shape or form and so Really, it's just been, you know, part of my journey to be able to share their story. And honestly, I feel like I'm in a place now where when I do share their story, um, they're sitting here with me as I share their story, applauding me and saying, you know, thank you for being a voice for us because we never had that opportunity.
0: If someone was concerned about substance abuse in their community, what could they do? What steps could they take? Yeah, I think there's a
1: lot of um, different uh, organizations and, and um, places of, of help that people can get. And so, you know, I'll first start by saying here in Birmingham, Alabama, I work for the Addiction Prevention Coalition, and it's a nonprofit that, uh, that I volunteer with. And that's where we're doing the Heroin Walk coming up. And really, it's a resource directory for people. And so we, it's twofold. So they can come to the website, They can find resources, resources that might fit them, you know, whether it's they want counseling services or the various uh, rehabilitation, um, you know, communities that we have. Obviously, uh, it's not one size fits all. And so trying to figure out where you fit and obviously having a place to go to, to narrow that down and then to start making some phone calls and figure out where might be a good fit for you or your family member, whomever it is you're trying to get the help for. And so that resource directory is great. But then on top of that, there's also the prevention element. You know, not only are we trying to help those that are in need um, of recovery, but also people that are, um, you know, our students and our younger generation and, and our community members that don't know anything about addiction. So how do we prevent it from happening in the first place? And so I think that that's, um, you know, something we're, Every community, uh, you'll find resources like that to where you can go and, um, you know, find it's kind of a directory of local, uh, you know, um, organizations or, um, you know, rehab centers or places where people can get the help that they need, whether they need help with the detoxing or, um, you know, further treatment, evaluation, and, uh, you know, professionals that can ultimately get you to a place where they can say okay you know this is this is sort of what led you down this path and this is a plan to get you moving in the right direction and um you know there's so many resources out there That I didn't even know about it. So when I came here to Birmingham, Alabama, I've just continuously learned about all these different resources, both on the local level, regional level, and national level. And I think that's where this conversation starts is that as we're talking about it, we're able to pull these resources together. Because again, it isn't one size fits all, and everybody is in need of maybe something a little different. And so to be able to to utilize that is so beneficial. And, um, you know, that's the beauty of uh, social media and the World Wide Web nowadays, you know. Know, there, there's a there's a multitude of resources and a plethora of options out there for people to utilize, and so I think um, you know people can obviously seek out those those opportunities um, and uh, you know try to help themselves or someone that is in need of of that that resource and or recovery um, to help them to move in a positive direction.
0: Absolutely. I think pretty much every county in Appalachia has some sort of substance abuse coalition. And actually, the point of our May event is to bring all of those coalitions together to talk about who's doing what and what information and resources we can share. So we very much appreciate you coming to speak at that event.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful way to bring everyone together and to really sort of understand the magnitude of this. And at the end of the day, we're all in this together. So why not team up and partner together to give people the resources that they need to get the help that they need? Because ultimately there has to be hope. People have to have hope that, that they can get better, that they can get well and that they can overcome, um, this, this epidemic and this disease and whatever it is they're fighting and battling, Um, And so I think that's the goal here is to give people that opportunity and that understanding that, hey, not all hope is lost. And while you are in a bad, dark place right now and you're really struggling with these issues, there is help out there. And there are professionals that can help you, um, you know, change your mindset and obviously change the course of your life. And um, ultimately, you know, I'm a firm believer that everybody deserves a good quality of life. And if you can make the right choices and really seek out the right resources, you know, I think that everyone, um, you know, has that opportunity uh, to be able to stand on their own two feet and to be able to move forward in life and in a way that's a, uh, you know, positive for everyone around them.
0: And one last question. If you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America?
1: Ooh. Well, I think one of the biggest things, um, first of all, as someone that is a, a, a family member to, you know, my father being in the Navy and my brother being in the Navy, I think the healthcare within the military, our veteran system certainly suffers. And that's been a, an, an ongoing discussion and debate. Um, how do we get our uh, military men and women the, the help that they need um, when they need it, especially those that don't have health care? Uh, you know, and, and I really just think that mental health um, as it pertains to addiction and what we're dealing with, you walk into a hospital, um, bleeding or you know cut up or a broken bone or a heart attack, and and they're they're ready to fix you right away. But unfortunately, as it pertains to addiction and and, and something that may not have the same physical effects or physical visible um, symptoms as those things. I think that sometimes it's downplayed as uh, you know it's in your head, you're crazy, like this is not an issue. But unfortunately, it is an issue, and it, it's a it's a big issue. And people are dealing with this, you know, on a daily basis. So how do we how do we um, care for these people? And how do we how do we have enough resources to be able to give people that second chance at life and to give them the opportunity to overcome? this battle that they might be having with addiction. And I think that is, you know, one of the biggest things that we really have to to work towards is, is giving people um, resources. And I think that, you know, it's crazy to think that if I'm an employee somewhere, I've still got to go pay, you know, $125 or $150 to go see a counselor. Well, just think about the people that are dealing with these type of issues, um, you know, in the prescription drug world and as it pertains to mental health that they are unable to go and seek out these treatment options because of the costs being so high and, um, you know, the affordability of it. And obviously the space, you know, space is limited and resources are limited. And so I think that we really just have to band together and try to find more um, resources that can accommodate the, uh, you know, the upturn that we're seeing in this addiction and, um, you know, this opiate epidemic and how do we get people the help that they need, um, you know, sooner rather than later.
0: Well, thank you, Lauren. We look forward to seeing you in May.
1: Sounds good. I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it'll be here before we know it.
0: That's Lauren Sisler encouraging you to connect to resources in your community. Ms. Sissler will be the keynote speaker at the Appalachian Community's Opioid Response Summit May 12 in Huntington, West Virginia. If you want to be part of that conversation, visit VRHA.org and look for a link to the event on the right side of the page. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.